0: Let me introduce Dr. Sladover. First of all, the title of his talk is Road Vehicle Automation, History, Myths, and Reality. So you'll notice there's a little difference between the title of his talk and the title of our group. And he's probably going to talk about this. He said he likes to be controversial, which we already knew about him. But he'll probably talk about this in his talk. I hope I'm not ruining anything. No, I will. So when the when the meetup group name came out as autonomous vehicle enthusiasts, I thought I might get a cease and desist letter from him. But that hasn't arrived because he wants us to use the word automated, and he will probably explain why that is. So I'm not going to make a judgment. I just don't want to change the name. Okay. Um, but uh, Dr. Sladover actually has been investigating and researching autonomous or automated vehicle systems for the last 40 years, starting as a grad student at MIT. And he's currently at PATH at... Uh, University of California, Berkeley. Now everyone knows what PATH is, but I actually had to look up the official acronym, and it's a little tricky because the H is in the middle of the word technology. So it goes, it goes like this: Partners for Advanced Transportation Technology. And he also chairs the Transportation Research Board's committee on vehicle highway automation. So if you could join me in welcoming Dr. All right. Okay. Okay. Uh, Thank you.
1: Thanks for coming out uh, on a a nice evening to uh, listen to a talk about some vehicle automation issues. Uh, I call this history, myths, and reality because I've been watching what's showing up in the media, what shows up online on this topic, and I would say in excess of 95% of what's out there falls in the realm of myth rather than reality. And I'd like to explain why I think that's the case. Uh, And some of that's actually related to the lack of a historical perspective on this, which is why I'm going to talk about the historical development of automated driving. I've seen an awful lot of comments that have said this began with the DARPA challenges. No. Dead wrong. There's lots that happened before the DARPA challenges. I'll say a little bit about the reasons why this is an interesting and worthwhile topic, that is the benefits, because I'm guessing I'm preaching to the choir when we talk about benefits. But then I will get into the definition of the concepts and the terms, and this is where this issue of automation or autonomy comes up. And go one by one through four myths and explain why I think they're myths rather than reality. The first of those Drivers are unsafe, so automation has to be safer. The second one is saying the technical problems are easy to solve compared to the societal and legal problems. I'll try to point out why technical problems are damn hard. They are not easy to solve. Next one is automated vehicles don't need cooperation with the infrastructure or each other. Just put them out there and let them do their thing and everything will be fine. Uh, No, I don't think so. And then finally, full automation will be available in the next five or 10 years. Yeah, I don't think so either. But given all of that, what should we be doing next? And that's where we'll wrap up. So a lot of historical elements here, but uh, the first one I put up was 1939, when General Motors displayed the Futurama exhibit portraying a possible future. And I'll show you a video of that in just a minute. But that... It wasn't even the beginning. There was a futurist named Norman Bel Geddes who was studying these ideas back in the 1930s that became the basis for the 1939 Futurama. Uh, RCA Corporation actually began technical work in 1949, and that was led by a man named Vladimir Zworykin, who is often credited with being the inventor of the current television system. So he worked on television at RCA Sarnoff Labs, and then he went into vehicle automation. And RCA and GM got together in the early 1950s and did quite a bit of work together on that topic. Uh, Some of this led to a very sexy concept car called the Firebird 2, which I'll also show you a video of. And then General Motors did another Futurama exhibit at the 1964 World's Fair. And that's where I was privileged to attend that and see that exhibit quite a few times. We'll see a video of that as well. On the research side, uh, after that earlier work at GM, there was then a concentrated research program at Ohio State University led by Professor Fenton, went to about 1980. Our program, PATH, got going in Berkeley in 1986 and picked up the ball and ran with it for since that time. Uh, that activity reached a peak during the period of 94 to 98 under the National Automated Highway System Consortium. And we'll show a little bit of video of that as well. And then we've subsequently done work on automated buses and trucks as well. So all of that happened before the DARPA challenges, which were in the 2004 to 2007 period. So let's go back to 1939, uh, General Motors Futurama, and there's...
2: And now we see an end-log.
1: So that was a 1939 exhibit, obviously little scale model cars. They were projecting 25 years into the future. What would things look like in 1964? Uh, a little bit on the optimistic side. Then um, GM developed this publicity video. Roger to move to electronic control strip in lane. The reason that you hear that high pitched whine is that is a gas turbine powered vehicle. That's a real vehicle that they developed as a concept vehicle. This is just a short clip of a much longer video that portrays the whole scenario. But notice no other traffic. That's the only vehicle on the road. Yeah. A l- little detail there. Well, they actually did work on the test track. I mean, it wasn't just concept stuff. And, oops, I have to click on this one. So this is a 1960 uh, test track experiment. Still operates
3: accelerator and brakes. But look, no hands.
1: And his cigarette.
4: <laughs> Two antennas on the car pick up low-frequency radio signals from the bearing cable and transmit steering directions to the car. Watch now as this car, traveling out of its lane and under manual control, is switched to the Auto Guide.
1: Yeah, I'm not sure that would be a very comfortable uh, transition. So, 1964 was the second Futurama. climax of the exhibit which had uh, six previous exhibits that displayed other aspects of the future as they visualized it would be 25 years hence. So uh, 1964 plus 25 1989. I, I don't think we quite got there. This is 1977. Researchers at Ohio State University have
3: been working on the project for 10 years and they feel that cars like this one may be on the nation's roads by the year two to drive from his home to a, another city, uh, will manually drive his vehicle, much as he does today, uh, from his home to the entrance ramp of an automated expressway. Research for the computer car is being funded by the federal government. Federal officials feel that computer driving could be safer and more economical than regular driving. Part of the mechanism which controls the this car is embedded right here in the concrete. This line generates steering. The lines to the outside are for braking and for speed. The computer-operated car can move around this track at over 60 miles an hour. But in the broader sense, no one seems sure of to Note
1: the analog it. computer.
3: Experts admit it will take huge amounts of money to embed the sensing devices in highways and lots of persuasion to convince motorists that this is the way to drive.
1: Uh, not only in the U.S. Uh, here we've got a couple of videos from Japan. So this the one on the left is the 1960s. Uh, this is uh, courtesy of Professor Tsugawa, who, who at the time was at the Miti in Japan, and then uh, that subsequently became Meti, and he's now at one of the universities. So you can see automatic driving uh, following a cable in the roadway, uh, Not the smoothest steering at that particular point, but uh, again, 1960s. And then by the 1970s, uh, he was doing work using video for a vision-based guidance system. And uh, I remember he proudly showed me that test car a number of years ago when I visited him. So he still has the test car in the garage. Uh, So you can see their machine vision application in the 1970s. Not only Japan, but also in Germany. Uh, here's a video from Professor Dickmann's at the University of the Bundeswehr, nineteen
4: eighty eight.
1: This is a BBC documentary, that's why it's a British accent. Well maybe one day you'll be able to, because this purely
4: experimental van is driving along now at about thirty five kilometers an hour, totally automatically, using only this ordinary camera to see where it's going it seems to have everything under control. I can lip in the back and show you how it works. computer vision is that there's so much information in a picture like this it can take seconds just to identify the road and in the meantime even at 35 kilometers an hour we could have crashed so this system has six little computers each of which is tracking a square down the edge of the road and along the center line and because the road is either lighter or darker than the boundaries they're continuously looking for the points at which light and dark meet tenth of a second, a master computer checks the output from all six squares and makes the decision as to where those boundaries really are.
1: So, okay, another vision experiment, 1988. Some of our work at PATH, just a few examples, 1997, we did the demonstration in San Diego, uh, that's eight cars that were operating in a closely coupled platoon, uh, they're driving five and a half meters apart from each other. We took about a 1,000 riders for demos on those vehicles during a four-day demonstration. Notice you're coming up the grade here. You don't see the gap varying between the vehicles. When you're sitting in one of those cars, it feels as if the car in front is pulling you up the grade. It feels like a mechanical coupling, but it's really an electronic coupling. Uh, And the right, an automatic merge. This is communication, coordinated driving of those vehicles. Those vehicles start outside line of sight with each other. The sensors cannot tell where they are. They have to communicate their location and speed to each other, and they actually negotiate the opening of the gap so that the car that's entering from the side can get in there. These are both examples of the essential element of vehicle-to-vehicle cooperation and communication. You can't do either of these things without it. And just one more, a little bit more recent from uh, a couple of years ago, uh, three-truck automated platoon. Um, These trucks we equipped with a forward-looking radar and LIDAR and vehicle-to-vehicle communication to coordinate what they're doing. Uh, They're driving at a gap, in this case, of about six meters. We did later experiments at a four-meter gap uh, and we had to do this out in central Nevada where we could get a section of road that we were allowed to close off to the public for the time we're doing the experiments. Uh, that road normally only carries 60 vehicles per day, so it was okay to close it temporarily. Uh, notice as a reflection at the bottom of the trailer that's to make sure that the sensors are actually seeing the back of the trailer that they're not reflecting off the rear axle of the trailer that distance of several meters would be a really bad error to have when you're driving just a few meters apart so you have to make sure the sensors really are detecting the back of the trailer sound was supposed to be muted on that one Uh, so just some examples of history in videos is a lot that's happened um This automation is not an end in itself. It's not just a matter of playing with nice toys, but it can be a tool for solving transportation problems. And I've listed three key problems that this can help solve. First is alleviating congestion, which is obviously a challenge for all of us here in the Bay Area. When we can operate those vehicles closer together, we can increase the capacity of the roadway infrastructure, again, by having them coordinated, and we can improve the traffic flow dynamics, get out of the traffic flow instabilities that produce the stop-and-go disturbances that we have right now. And I'll show you later on a direct example of the contrast between communicating and not communicating. We can also reduce energy use and emissions. Uh, First of all, by aerodynamic drafting. When we ran those trucks close together in that demonstration, we were measuring fuel savings in the order of 15% for the followers and on the order of 5% for the front truck, compared to if they were just driving individually. That turns into big money for truck operators. We can, again, use that same communication and coordination to improve the smoothness of the traffic flow. And I listed safety last because that's the hardest one. But if this is done well, we can reduce and mitigate crashes. Again, the vehicles need to be connected with each other to get to these benefits. Uh, And there. So a little bit more detail on these. Congestion. typical highway lane, when it's operating at its maximum effectiveness, will carry about 2,200 vehicles per hour per lane. Or if it's a lane that's just handling trucks, it'll carry about 750 trucks per hour per lane. Those capacities are governed by driver behavior, the driver's car following behavior, and their gap acceptance for lane changing. You have to have enough of a gap to be able to change lanes. When they're operating at that maximum effectiveness, if you took an aerial photograph of the highway, you'd see the vehicles are only occupying about 5% of the road surface. The other 95% of the road surface is all the gaps you need around the vehicles because of those driver limitations. I've heard
5: that stat before, and on the through, I kind of looked around. me to see if it
3: looked like 19 States yeah, are, are It sure doesn't look
1: that way. Right. Well, the key thing is when you're operating at this high capacity, not when you're stopped in stop-and-go traffic. No, then you're much closer together. But you're not carrying 2,000 or 2,200 vehicles per hour per lane when you're in that high-density congestion. This is when you're flowing at 60 miles an hour, because that's when you're getting the capacity. If you're driving at 60 miles per hour, then you do have approximately 10-car lengths between you, and the width of even a full-size passenger car is only about half the width of a lane. So you've got to factor a two on the side, and you've got to factor a ten longitudinally. And that's where this comes from. Um, so... The other thing is the shock waves. the stop-and-go disturbances, result from driver's response delays. It takes a while for you to perceive that something is changing up ahead and to respond. And anybody who knows control and dynamics knows you introduce a delay into a system, you introduce instability. That's exactly what happens in driving. By having cooperation between the vehicles we can get around some of those problems. We can get to shorter gaps, faster responses, and more consistent response among all the vehicles. So that gets us to the higher throughput and reducing the transients. For energy and emissions, when you're driving at highway speed, about half of the energy you consume is to overcome aerodynamic drag. And, again, I already mentioned with the truck platoons, you can actually save a significant percentage of that by drafting, but you can also save energy by smoothing out the accelerate and decelerate cycles, which are very wasteful. If you can keep that traffic flowing at a constant speed, it's much more efficient. Again, depends on cooperation. Safety, now that's the tough one. We always hear 95% of the crashes are caused by driver behavior problems or the environment. So behavior problems could be perception, could be driver judgment of the situation, could be the driver response, or could be inattention. The driver's not paying attention to what's going on. And the environmental aspects could be things like low visibility or poor road surface friction. So automation can get rid of those driver behavior problems And if we've got well-chosen sensors and communication technologies, we shouldn't be vulnerable to the weather problems. So there's an opportunity for well-chosen sensors to be able to do that. You can detect and compensate for poor road service friction. But the really hard part of this is if you just look at the current traffic safety statistics... There are about 3 million vehicle hours of operation between fatal crashes and about 65,000 vehicle hours of operation between injury crashes. So even if you don't get into the argument about whether automation needs to be a lot better than today's driving, if it's only going to be just as good as what we have today, it's got to be able to do that much with a consumer product. Now, I don't know if anybody has a laptop computer or a smartphone or any other modern software-intensive electronic device that can go that long between failures, but if they do, I'd sure love to see it. Steve, I
5: have a modern software-dependent device called my car. It seems to do pretty well on that part of the computer.
1: Around. It does that well because you're the driver and you're dealing with all of those difficult problems in the environment. Most of the problems. <laughs> uh, uh, Yes.
2: Oh, on the previous slide, the 95% uh, of the
1: perception, judgment, response, and attention. How much of that is um, alcohol or drug use? The there are lots of arguments about that, but maybe something in the range of a third are associated with impairment because of uh, substance usage. So. Uh, have this issue of what do we call this? So I decided to go back to the Oxford English Dictionary, which is generally considered the authoritative source for the English language. And let's start at the bottom line automation, the use of electronic or mechanical devices to replace human labor. So we got a human driver, we're replacing that human driver with electronic or mechanical devices to the, do the driving instead. We're doing automation. Autonomy is independence, self-government. So if that vehicle is doing this without depending on any others in its vicinity or without depending on some cooperation from the infrastructure, that's an autonomous automated vehicle. But if it's cooperating with those other things, it's a cooperative automated vehicle. So instead of making those synonyms, we put them on orthogonal axes here. We've got the degree of automation on one axis, the degree of cooperation on the other axis. This is greatly oversimplified in terms of warning, control, assistance, and full automation. And I'll show a finer breakdown right after this, but the autonomy is the inverse of the cooperation on this axis. So we've got autonomous warning systems that are available now on a variety of vehicles. You can give forward collision warning, lane departure warning based on sensors that are installed in your vehicle. And we've got autonomous adaptive cruise control, which will do speed control and gap control to the vehicle in front based on the sensors on your vehicle. And of course, the military for years has been interested in autonomous unmanned vehicles that can operate in hazardous environments. Uh, Intelligence Speed adaptation is a concept that's been proposed more in Europe in which the roadside communicates a speed limit to the vehicles and then the vehicles could stay within that speed limit. Uh, Cooperative collision warning would warn the driver of safety hazards based on communication of data from other vehicles. Cooperative adaptive cruise control adds vehicle-to-vehicle communication on top of the adaptive cruise control and automated highway systems provide high levels of both cooperation and automation. So if we look at some of the current activities, what Google's talked about is their goal is in that upper left corner. Uh, There are a lot of commercially available systems in the lower left corner, and the Department of Transportation is investing a lot of effort right now in something called the safety pilot, in which they're experimenting with cooperative collision warnings, uh, with the idea that that could lead to a decision to make a regulation that all new vehicles after a certain model year would have the communication device so that they could indeed cooperate for safety purposes. Now, a more detailed set of definitions has recently been developed by SAE International, which is formerly known as the Society of Automotive Engineers. So this is the Professional Society for Automotive Engineering for those who are not from that domain. And in this breakdown, it is a little bit too complicated and hard to see on the chart, but there are five different layers of automation, and as we go down, we see the system taking over more and more of the responsibility for the driving function uh, relative to what the driver is doing. Now. There's always a challenge in trying to do breakdowns like this that any specific system may not fit neatly into one or another of those classifications, but we have to have a way of breaking it down so that we can at least be talking about something that is similar. Right now, you you see a term like driverless cars, well what the hell does that mean? Uh, And Sometimes people use it for functions up here where there's very much driver involvement. The only place where the driver might not be involved is in the highest level of automation. So the types of systems that might exist at each of these levels, at level one, we could have an adaptive cruise control on a vehicle or a lane-keeping assistance system, but the driver has to do everything else in the driving function. At level two, we could have a combination of adaptive cruise control and lane-keeping so the driver doesn't have to have their hands on the wheel or their feet on the pedals, but the driver still must continuously monitor the driving environment for any hazards. And this is an example like Mercedes has announced the traffic jam assist that will be available next month on the S-Class, it's at that level too because the driver has to keep touching the steering wheel for that system to operate. Level three is where things start getting more challenging. This is where the driver could temporarily disengage from the driving task, let the system do all the driving for a period of time under certain limited conditions, like maybe in a traffic jam on a limited access highway. So the driver could do something else, but the system can't handle all the circumstances. So when a failure occurs or it encounters a situation it can't handle, it's going to turn control back to the driver and say, here, guy, it's yours, And you might have two, three, five seconds in which you need to take over. And if you don't take over within that period of time, you've got a big problem. Level four overcomes that by saying, even if the driver doesn't intervene, doesn't take over when the system tries to hand control back to him, it will bring the vehicle to a minimum risk condition. So that might mean something like parking on the side of the road if there's a shoulder. Now, if there's not a shoulder, what happens? Does it stop in the traffic lane? A whole bunch of complications associated with that. At level five is where you get to the system that might be an automated taxi where you could put the child in the taxi and have it take him or her to school and then come back and take another child somewhere else, or it could take a blind person to go and get their fast food, um, whatever, or a car share system that could reposition the empty vehicles so that uh, it could help improve the fleet management. You don't get to those until you get to level five. So... Maybe we we'll stop there for a few questions before we get into the individual myths. And no? No? Okay. Oh yeah. I'm really
6: worried about levels too. because that was in in ADA, that was proven to most
5: dangerous. Yep.
1: This document is not a normative document. So, this document is not saying what you should or shouldn't do. It's just defining the categories. Now, what's happened is NHTSA, National Highway Traffic Safety Administration, has recently issued a document that's somewhat more normative in flavor, and their classifications are on the left edge of this. I I didn't try getting into that in detail. I'm on a
4: National Academy of Studies.
6: The Department of Defense recently.
1: lots of things that aren't part of the chart, because you start getting multiple dimensions if you start uh, accounting for all of those different possibilities. But... You're I, superior. Sorry?
6: you superior.
1: Right. Again, this is purely for purposes of classification. This is not saying this is what you should do, or should not do. And in fact, there was a lot of discussion about whether that level three should even be... Um, even be included or whether you should go directly to the level four. And that would and then the whole discussion was, well this is we're not being normative here, we're just trying to define different categories and then people can decide what they will or won't do. But the point is there is a
6: s there are safety between uh one and four. And you don't have to skip between one and four. other. There are stakes over there's an interaction where it's a true teamwork yeah. as opposed to
5: destroying line. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. I, I, I mean, this debate did go on at TRP, um, and who was the fellow from uh, Italy who who put it that you know you look at uh, Induct, which is a French uh, car, which hmm. does completely unmanned off.
1: Yeah, that's and that's, that's.
5: They call it level five, but he says he's calling these levels is a bad idea levels suggest yeah.
1: there is a hierarchy Do you agree with that? Or... Well, no, actually, it fits within level four because there's a. See, this is not the entire document. This is a summary of a document that goes on for seven or eight pages. And there's actually a place in level four for those unmanned vehicles that operate in constrained environments, like a campus shuttle system or a parking valet system that would park the car with nobody on board. It's just that it doesn't have the capability of doing it everywhere under all conditions, which is what you would have at level five. If you're going to do the car share repositioning or the taxi that's going to take the kid to school, it's got to be able to handle everything in the driving environment. But the idea is if you had some more constrained environments, then that's not a system down there. That would be This works in some driving modes, but not necessarily all driving modes. So actually, his system would fit in the level four. Uh, Yeah. I'm just wondering
3: the the people that created the document and their purpose is different than people reading the document and what they get out of it. I think part of what Don is saying,
7: I'm I'm kind of afraid that people are going to see it, people in the industry are
3: going to see it as a Step function. The like, first one I'm going to level, two, level one, level, yeah. level two, level two, Uh-oh. level three, and that's what people are going to know. Oh, yeah. Here's where the risk comes in. Yeah. Well, how do you mitigate that? How do you yeah. mitigate to say, like,
1: guys, level two or level three is stupid? Let's go to level four. Yeah. yeah. Well, part of, part of that is in the introductory material that just says their definitions, but the other thing is the levels didn't show up until the last couple of months when NHTSA came out with their scheme. And that was as a result of a negotiation with NHTSA to try to reconcile the NHTSA definitions and the SAE definitions. So originally they just had names, they didn't have levels, and the levels came up very recently because of the attempt to reconcile these two different sets of definitions, one done within the industry and one done within the government. And Those discussions will continue, but a lot of the issues that people get uncomfortable about within the chart show up in the full document. They're actually explained in a lot more detail. Uh, but again, we couldn't go through the whole document line by line. It would take hours. So, uh, I'd like to get going into some of the myths, because this is maybe where we get to more of the substance. So, uh, first one is drivers are unsafe, so the automation has to be safer. We go back to these numbers of hours of operation, just to maintain equivalent safety to today's driving. How many hours of testing would you have to do to prove that you were just as good as today's driving, that you weren't worse. And how do those numbers compare to modern consumer electronics, Uh, especially consumer electronics that are very heavily dependent on software? So I would come at this by saying, if our goal is really improving safety, let's add warning and control assistance capabilities to what the driver is already doing so that we improve the driver's vigilance instead of throwing out the driver's vigilance and saying, well we're gonna the driver's doesn't do anything and now the system's gonna do everything instead. So if we get to that full automation, we have no more driver vigilance, the system's responsible for everything, and that can include some very awkward, what I call ethically untenable situations we can come back to later. So why is this so hard? Um, you can get lots of extreme conditions arising without any advance warning. You can have another vehicle that fails, that causes it to veer into your course. You can have debris from a crash involving a different vehicle that gets in your way. You can have a load dropping off a truck. You can have an electrical storm with a lightning strike, an electromagnetic pulse that uh, interferes with your electronics. All sorts of bad things can happen. The system has to be able to deal with it. And the part that nobody wants to talk about, but we really have to talk about, is the new crashes that are caused by the automation. Uh, Everybody likes to talk about all those 95% of crashes that the drivers caused today that are going to go away. Well, they better not be replaced by a bunch of new crashes. And those crashes could be caused by... Strange circumstances the designer could not anticipate. Those vehicles are going to be out there for millions and millions and millions of driving hours. What designer is going to anticipate every one of those conditions and have a fix for it? software bugs that are in there that didn't get exercised during testing because this is so complicated you cannot do comprehensive testing to cover all possible conditions so there will be bugs and everybody who's done development work on vehicles like this has their horror stories of weird bugs that popped up after what seemed like a totally debugged system nope got into some slightly new condition and a bug popped up the system failed undiagnosed faults in the vehicle Lots of things that can fail. If you don't have totally comprehensive fault diagnosis, how do you know you've got the fault? And you can have catastrophic failures of any vital vehicle systems, including something like loss of electrical power. If the driver is not available to serve as the backup, what happens? And this sort of leads into the second of the myths. The technical problems are easy to solve compared to the societal and legal problems. I mean, there's a Another school of thought that says if we can solve the technical problems, the societal and legal problems will get solved pretty quickly because this is something people would really like to have. But those technical problems are really hard. And I really like this cartoon from Arnie Bartels at Volkswagen who's presented this in a variety of places. So you've got your adaptive cruise control and lane departure warning, and then a miracle occurs and you get to automatic driving. Uh, so you need to be a little bit more explicit about what happens in between the two. That's not a straightforward Transition at all. So, what kind of technical problems need to be solved that haven't been solved? Well, I'd say the top one is real time software safety and real time software verification. How do you verify that that program is safe? As far as I know, that technology does not exist. Nobody knows how to verify software for anything other than a trivially simple case. I know some of my colleagues worked on this years ago with a very simple set of protocols, and the verification process by formal methods was outlandishly complicated, uh, just for a simple case. Well, now you've got something that's incredibly complicated. How do you verify that that's actually safe? At a lower level, you've got online fault detection, identification, and accommodation. The system has to be self-diagnosing. You can tolerate Essentially, zero misdetections or false negatives. I mean, something bad happens. You must detect it. You must respond. Well, if you turn up your detection so sensitive to catch all of those, you're going to get some false positives or false alarms. The driver's not going to tolerate that. If your car slams on the brakes suddenly because it thinks there's some hazard and there isn't really, you're going to be really unhappy. And you might even cause a crash because the guy behind you didn't know that was going to happen and runs into you. When you encounter those bad conditions, you need to instantly switch to a safety-graded mode. And instantly, I'm saying on the order of a tenth of a second. Because if you're driving at highway speed in the course of a tenth of a second, you've gone ten feet. A lot of bad things can happen if it takes any longer than that before your vehicle responds. And you need comprehensive general obstacle detection. You have to detect any obstacle in your environment that the vehicle is going to encounter. So anything large enough or uh, hard enough to cause harm, but at the same time, you have to ignore the innocuous soft targets. Think of the example of a brick in the road that happens to be right in the tire track of your vehicle. Very small object, not very reflective in any of the electromagnetic spectrum, but if you run over that, it's really bad. On the other hand, you could have a hunk of styrofoam. It's totally innocuous. A lot bigger, a lot easier to see. You could have a metallized mylar balloon, very reflective in both the optical and the radar bands. could be floating out there. You don't want the vehicle to slam the brakes on because a mylar balloon is out there in front of you. How do you develop the intelligence so you can segregate those things and make sure you do stop for the things that are genuinely dangerous and you don't stop for the things that are innocuous? And do it under all weather conditions because your vehicle is going to operate under all weather conditions. Add to that the threat of cybersecurity. How do you secure this vehicle against possible intrusions by somebody with bad intent? Whether it's the teenage hacker who wants to uh, cause something exciting to happen or the terrorist who wants to cause something really catastrophic to happen. Because now that vehicle is under electronic control. The driver is not engaged. How do you make sure that doesn't happen? Sensors, really big challenge, especially if it's autonomous automation without that benefit of cooperation among vehicles. You've got to have high accuracy. You've got to have a field of regard that lets you cover everything surrounding the vehicle on all sides. And it's got to be able to discriminate all of those different types of targets. You're probably not going to find that in any one technology. You're probably going to have to fuse multiple sensors. And those sensors are going to need to have complementary faults and vulnerabilities. You don't want to be vulnerable to a common mode fault. If every one of your sensors is in an optical band that's sensitive to fog and you run into fog, you're dead. So it's going to, this is going to all going to get to cost and complexity. When you're collecting data with sensors, anybody who works with real sensor data knows there's lots of noise. You've got to do filtering. You've got to filter out that noise because you're going to get bad results if you don't filter it out. But as soon as you start filtering the noise out, you introduce lags. That means delays in response. And guess what? The system response may not be any faster than a driver's response by the time you've done all the verification of that sensor data to make sure, yes, this really is a dangerous situation and I need to put the brakes on rather than this is something innocuous or it's noise in the sensors. If you're trying to collect that data, the sensors on one vehicle trying to detect what's happening with another vehicle are a lot slower and have a lot more uncertainty than sensors that are mounted right on the vehicle. Uh, Just think of trying to detect the acceleration or the deceleration of the vehicle in front of you. If you've got a LiDAR on your vehicle, it's measuring distance. You're going to differentiate that twice to get acceleration to know that the car in front is decelerating? Not good. Um, The driver in front is going to do something different. It's going to step on the brakes. He started to move his or her foot to the brake pedal, but it hasn't happened yet. Your sensor can't tell that. But if that vehicle in front is going to, let's say it's an adaptive cruise control, it's about to apply the brakes. As soon as it applies, it gets the command to apply the brakes, that can be communicated to other vehicles, which can then start responding, even before the vehicle that had the initial problem started changing its speed. And I don't know of any sensors that can detect the kind of subtle cues that vehicle, that experienced drivers use right now. Just like, did that driver see me or not? It's an important thing to know when you're a defensive driver. I don't think any of those sensors are going to tell you that. Do you have a question? Yeah. So, um,
2: this, this slide requires slide The concept of communication between the vehicles and this cooperation feels like something that would be very efficient. You could have an ultra-efficient system. That would be it. But it seems to me, given that you're, you have this performance requirement in terms of your computation and uh, lack of faults, that it's also probably a really bad idea.
1: But, bad in which way?
2: You, you can't guarantee that your software is not going to fail at some point. You're introducing a very complex system that We'll have lots of calls, right? And if every vehicle on the road has every other vehicle communicating exactly correctly its intent at all times, you kind of guarantee uh, that the system will fail often if you you require uh, interacting between the vehicles. Whereas if the vehicle is fully autonomous, right, then they don't need to have, to be relying on someone else
1: I'm not suggesting that the vehicles depend entirely on that. I'm suggesting that they use that data to augment the data they're getting from their own sensors. So it's the combination of the self-censored data plus the data that's communicated from the others, not in place of, uh, not replacing the sensor data with data that's communicated from the others.
5: But aren't you suggesting that augmented with the radio communication is safe?
1: I'm saying it's safer than without the communication. Because for example, a failure of another, if you've got the communication, this is actually coming up later on in one of the other myths, but since the question came up right now, if you're communicating with the other vehicle, the absence of communicated data also tells you something. So for example, one of the other vehicles has a failure and it's no longer communicating, now you know something is wrong and I need to at least get a bigger gap compared to where I am now relative to that other vehicle. So you've got additional sources of data that are not available to you if you're only using your self-sensor data. So again, I'm not talking about substituting for sensor data, but augmenting sensor data. So, In fact, that actually is the next of these uh, myths to talk about. A lot of people saying you don't need cooperation with the infrastructure, with each other, just let them go out there autonomously and do their own thing. Well, I see the autonomous vehicle as a deaf mute. It can see, but it can't talk to other vehicles, it can't listen to what the other vehicles are seeing. It's much better to have a vehicle that's got full sensory capabilities, not just seeing, but also talking and listening. And that's where you can communicate that vehicle performance and status and condition data directly, which helps get around some of the uncertainties in the sensor data, helps reduce those filtering lags. I mean, for example, if I wanna know the speed of the vehicle in front, that vehicle has wheel speed sensors that are really good for purposes of the anti-lock braking. All that vehicle needs to do is keep sending me that speed data. If that vehicle's got a braking command that's gone to the braking system, send that data to me so I know it, I'm behind, and I'll get that data a lot faster than waiting for my sensor to see that, oh, that vehicle in front appears to be slowing down because I'm getting closer to it and I'm going at a constant speed. It takes a whole lot longer than just getting that data coming directly from the other vehicle when the command goes to its braking system. So if we've got that richer information, then we can get to better capacity and ride quality because we, we can expand the performance capabilities of the whole system. So and I've already been covering this in the answers to the questions, uh, we got the additional thing of vehicles can negotiate their maneuvers to improve safety and efficiency. Uh, you know, I want to merge onto the highway and now I'm trying to find a gap. Well if my vehicle can communicate with the other vehicles nearby, can actually negotiate a gap just like we showed in the video back at the beginning that we did on the test track. Those vehicles negotiated that gap and the ones in the main line opened up a gap to let the entering vehicle come in. That's got both safe, that's got safety implications, but it's got huge traffic flow in implications, because those merging conflicts when vehicles are trying to get on the highway are a major source of congestion. Uh, Now, the idea of this communication technology may be mandated by NHTSA, National Highway Traffic Safety Administration, in coming years. They have to make a decision by the end of this year whether they're going to start the regulatory process to require that on new vehicles. And if that goes forward, uh, those are likely to cost less than $100 per vehicle. And then that would provide both the vehicle-to-vehicle and the vehicle-to-infrastructure communication uh, capability, and I already mentioned the handshakes between vehicles that helps you verify the condition of the vehicles around you and know whether there's a hazard that your sensors might not see.
0: Sorry, I a there, yeah. When you save less than hundred dollars per vehicle. Are you talking about the cost of the
1: OEM versus the end user. To the end user, because <laughs> this would be on every new vehicle, so it would be in large-scale production at that point, and. People are still working on exactly what the design is going to be. There's still discussions going on in the standards about which is the best way to do certain things. But uh, I think the idea is the end user would pay on no more than $100 for it. Yes? Since I'm
7: working a little bit in this field about the cost, you're talking about the parts cost. Since I work on hardware enablement, software tests,
1: But the people working on that have been developing the software and the applications all along. It's not as if that's still to be done. A lot of that work has been going on over the past 10 years. Certainly, but, I'm, I'm all in favor of standards like... And with most of these things, they are more expensive in the early generations, but then you amortize the development cost over the subsequent years of production.
7: I some uh, technology reviewers get all angry because some new phone didn't have seen your communication it. it. only cost five cents, they said. <laughs> hmm. If only they knew. I mean, it must be nice to be a standard one that makes a standard and boom, there's the technology. I, I don't know. <laughs> uh, yes? Are they
2: talking about the- Sent the radio you like similar to what's on
1: the right now what's well, a subset of that and there's a bunch of discussion about what's in the message set there's something called the basic safety message that includes key elements of the vehicle location speed direction of travel and a few other state descriptions of the vehicle it's the total payloads on the order of 50 bytes uh, I don't remember all the variables that are included in the message it's
2: a subset of' what's available no, it's not It's not... It's a subset of what's on on most cars in the bus right now. It's not new, so it's right. Yeah,
1: yeah, well, well, recognizing that you'd have to have the GPS that's providing your positioning data, for example. So... depends on whether you've got the GPS on the vehicle already. but And there's actually a part two of the basic safety message that has placeholders for lots of other things that people might want to add in the future. So the idea is that it would have a growth path as well if some new capabilities look desirable that would require additional variables that somebody wasn't ready to put out today, but they might want to put out a few years from now.
3: So you need a to radio
1: too. Yeah, it's yeah.
3: Installed
1: over yeah, well, and that's the thing that they're deciding whether to mandate. It would be that radio that would be the uh, the device that would be subject to the mandate and that would have to be added to the vehicles after a certain model year. Uh, Martin? Yeah, just, just your personal you know,
3: opinion about this. So, so we're not going to have tomorrow everybody has it. Right. So are you suggesting that until tomorrow everybody uh, has it, we don't
1: have the property? There's no sort of snap of the fingers and all of a sudden something happens. The idea behind the rulemaking for that is to start getting that market penetration going up by having the new vehicles equipped. And then they're looking at ways of doing retrofitting into vehicles that are already on the market as a way of potentially accelerating the rate of introduction. Uh, But that's not something that uh, NHTSA could mandate. Uh, That's something that would have to be done through market incentives for people, and people seeing that they're going to get some safety benefit out of having that, particularly if it's less expensive than a system that's relying on a lot of sensors on the vehicle. And people argue all over the place about, how those economics are going to work out because obviously the sensor technologies are getting better every year and what's the baseline that you're comparing the communication-based system to as the alternative to the communication-based system. Uh, here I'm thinking of it more as an augmentation of the sensors, not as the system that you depend on entirely. I, mean, but I think your
3: argument is well-founded that the more sensors you have, the more information you have, the better you can So well, we have to design the system
1: That, that's your starting point. And then when you have that additional information available, you can get to higher levels of capability, higher levels of performance. And that's actually the reason for this particular slide, which is to say there are certain functions that you can only get when you've got that cooperation. If you only have sensors, you don't get any of these. Yeah. The
5: functions you have on this slide, Steve, are um, there are functions that are not early. So the first part on Yes. although agreed that they couldn't find a way to find, get enough people together to form a platoons in their own platooning project is one of the biggest barriers to make happen yeah. but I want to get to this very core issue because you said the myth is that, th- that there's a myth that we do this without the cooperation between the vehicles yeah. and that's very central because we're looking at a technology that NHTSA mandates mandate that we'll see it widely deployed maybe in 2030 if we're lucky right, in terms of the amount of, of, of the rate of deployment, the age of cars and so on mm-hmm. So we'll see it in 23
1: Well, no, but we'll see a lot of it before then. I mean, you're, you're making the assumption you have to have 100%, and you don't have to have 100%. I'm not, never get 100%. I think that is most likely true. I think it's going to be incredibly hard to get above the safe enough line without it. Uh,
5: the problem is, since 100% of vehicles will not have the technology, that, you cannot deploy your vehicle without the vehicle being able to handle a non-video no. vehicle next to on the road. The, 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 okay, but you,
1: we're talking right by each other, because I'm not saying what you're arguing against. Um, but so,
4: yes, you have esteem-
1: And then they won't have the ability to do the higher functions. So they will then degrade to the purely sensor-based functions without the enhanced performance. And, in fact, they have to be able to work that way because the radio won't work 100% of the time, just like any other component that won't work 100% of the time.
5: Safe enough. I have to be safe enough above the same line with a vehicle which does not talk to me on the radio.
1: No, you have to you, you have to degrade to a reduced capability mode of operation at that point, which may be a mode of operation that's not beneficial to the customer at all. But it prevents them from getting into some severe hazard. So now you've got a system that doesn't really do much, but you don't get killed, and that that's the most important thing. So l- let's go through what some of these capabilities are that you have to have communication for. So let's say you've got the... Because I've got examples to follow here. You've got the cooperative adaptive cruise control, and I'll show... What, that, what difference that makes compared to a regular adaptive cruise control. we got the merging, which we already saw in the video, because you're starting beyond the line of sight. You've got the multi-vehicle automated platoons at the short separations, which is the way you get capacity up or you get the aerodynamic dra- drag down, and the truck platoons that, again, let you get truck lane capacity up and get the drag down. With vehicle infrastructure to cooperation, there are some other specialized functions you can get in the locations where you need those functions. I'm not going to talk about those in detail, but I'll focus on the vehicle-to-vehicle. So this is now... What we get with today's autonomous adaptive cruise control, like these are Infiniti M56s, you can go out and buy them at your Infiniti dealer. Uh, this is some experiments we're doing at the minimum gap setting that the manufacturer provides, and this is just driving a sequence of four of them. So this is the fourth video, hasn't four, three, two, one car, and. We're going to just go through a gentle speed change maneuver. So the lead vehicle's accelerating at .05 G's right now. Notice we got brake lights on the third vehicle. It's still dealing with some previous transients. So even though the lead vehicle's accelerating, the third car has its brakes on. Uh, And in fact, it's got the brakes on again. Now the fourth car has got its brake on. The lead vehicle's just started decelerating at .05 G's. Notice the delays for each of the vehicles after that to apply their brake lights. So it's an adaptive cruise control system. It's the same type of sensing that you would have on an autonomous automated vehicle, but you've got all of that delay in the response. Now the lead vehicle is accelerating at 0.1 g. Again, pretty gentle acceleration. we got braking on the last car while the first car is accelerating. Now they're going to start to accelerate, but it's taking a while for that last car to catch up. Now the lead vehicle put its brakes on the last one 's still decelerating, and look at the delays once again on the brake lights, even now that the lead vehicle is staying at a constant speed, the gap between the third and the fourth car continues to vary quite a lot now. This is an example because of the response delays in the system. And this system, by the way, was designed to be stable in car following. Uh, Among all of the production ACC systems in Japan, in fact, this one was tested to be the most stable because it's designed for a two-car operation. We got one car following another. When you string four of them together, behavior is not so good. And, in fact, the measured data shows that when we had a one-tenth of a G Maneuver on the front car. The fourth car was accelerating and decelerating at three tenths of a g. It's a very unpleasant experience for the driver in the fourth car. This is because. <laughs> yeah. And that, well, that's that's another one of the advantages of doing the cooperative system. So, so now we got the same cars. We apply the vehicle-to-vehicle cooperation, and we're going to do the same maneuver. Uh, vehicle's accelerating at .05 Gs, and you're not really seeing any, anything dramatic happening among the following cars. This is, again, the 0.6, which is the minimum setting that we allow on the cooperative system. Uh, you can still get cut-ins at 0.6, by the way. Now lead cars decelerating at .05 Gs. No brake lights on any of the cars because the 0.05 Gs is something you can do just with engine braking. So it's just by coming off the engine and allowing the engine braking, you get that deceleration. Now we're going to get the lead vehicle accelerating at the 0.1 G. Uh, And again, you're not seeing any variation in the cars. And notice when the lead vehicle brakes at 0.1 G, you're going to get nearly simultaneous brake lights on all the cars. See? They all go on together because they all got the data from that lead car that says it's putting the brakes on, so it's time for them to put the brakes on. The result is much smoother ride, the ability to drive at these close separations, and in an earlier project, we did a human factors experiment with drivers from the general public to understand what their preferences were, and indeed, they were quite comfortable driving at this shorter gap with the cooperative system, even though they were... Not that comfortable driving at the short gaps with the autonomous system because the car following is so much better behaved. Uh, yeah?
2: So, uh, this is, so, have you tested this in simulation in, say, a thousand cars?
1: That's something we're working on right now. But um, the important thing that we had to do was to get a good model of this behavior. Turns out there are a slew of published papers out there that are claiming that the conventional adaptive cruise control is going to smooth out traffic flow because the models that they're using to represent it are bad models. Models don't represent the behavior of real vehicles. So now we've gone through these experiments. We've got decent dynamic models of the behavior of the vehicles and now we're at the stage that we're ready to put them into traffic simulation and say what does that actually do in traffic and in particular, what does the ACC without communication do to traffic um, and that's the part that's a little bit scarier because that's where it looks like we get these disturbances being amplified instead of being damped out uh, yes how
2: dependent, you the of the vehicle, how dependent are the models of the vehicle-
1: Uh, I don't think they're going to be terribly dependent on the propulsion source. They're going to be much more dependent on the way the adaptive cruise control system designer designed the system because each manufacturer designs their systems for a different type of feel, a different type of driving experience. I know the car that I drive has a, has a different type of adaptive cruise control from this that has actually significantly different dynamic response from these cars. So each car model has its own personality and so the more important thing is how did the designer design the car following feel of the adaptive cruise control and what happens when we start mixing the cars that have been designed to have a different feel because that's what they thought the customers for that model of car wanted. So matter Not in a big way, no. I mean, there might be some fine-grained differences, but I don't think it's going to be a big difference. Uh, Yes, Martin? So just a comment on what you're
3: you're proposing. And I think semantics and the semantics are very important. So I think, and you have to correct me if I'm misinterpreting what you're saying, but you're saying Autonomy is not the right thing, but cooperation is not the right thing. And, and yeah. so, so, so my point here would be to say, like, what is wrong is our definition of what autonomy is about. And so, I mean, I would claim that we as human beings are autonomous entities, right? But we do cooperation, collaboration, teamwork, and we know how to do that. And that is what we need to design in these cars, not arguing yeah. Symbiosis and how we deal with automation versus autonomy. It's more about yeah. defining what the definition of autonomy really is about. And I think your yeah. point is well taken
1: yeah. that
3: cooperation should definitely be part of it. Yeah. How would you go beyond and say collaboration mm-hmm.
1: and teamwork. Yeah, That's yeah, true. yeah. I I agree. And the problem is we don't have terms that capture all of those um, all of those subtleties in that. But I think maybe yeah. Yeah. Potentially, yes. Yeah, Uh, I think maybe where we got into this trouble in the first place is when people were thinking of robots that had the intelligence located on the robot itself. They were calling it autonomous because they're thinking the decision making is residing right there. And the thing is, the decision making is not the entirety of the functions that that entity is doing. There are a bunch of functions. So that decision-making may have been happening autonomously inside that entity, but it's very much dependent on other entities around it. So when you look at the whole set of functions, it is not at all autonomous. It's doing all of these other things that uh, that depend on other entities in its vicinity. But um, yeah, the, the part that I, I really rail against is when autonomy is used as a synonym for automation, and saying you know by replacing the human with a machine is autonomy, and say no, no, that is not correct. And in fact, if you go back to, uh, to the French language, you know autonomy for a vehicle is the range of the vehicle. It means how far it can go independently before it has to you know get refueled. So the word is used in other ways in in other contexts too. So. Finally, this is sort of a good lead-in to this idea that we're going to have full automation in the next five or ten years, and I think there are so many of the technical challenges that I've talked about already. When you bring them all together, we don't have a way of proving the safety of the software for these safety-critical applications. So how are we going to have that vehicle that's going to do everything in this really, really complicated driving environment? this is a complex system. It's not a simple system. How do we test all the possible combinations of input conditions it's going to be exposed to and the relative timing of all of those input conditions? Uh, the dimensions just explode on you when you consider the complexity of the driving environment. And when you think about all that, how many hours of continuous and unassisted no intervention by humans, automated driving has actually been achieved in real traffic under diverse conditions. When you think of the range of conditions, not just lane keeping and car following in one lane, but driving through the full richness of the driving experience. Has anybody gotten up to even one hour? No,
5: 1,500.
1: But just highway driving? Yeah, mostly highway. Well, but urban driving is a lot harder. Um, and. We got that 10 to 6 hours between fatal crashes. we got to be at least that good. Well, there's
5: 6,000 hours between overall crashes. Right? So but, 1,500 hours is not too bad with no crashes. Right? I mean, it's not too it, good as a human can, Steve, so, uh, how long do we let teenagers drive? <laughs> how many hours do they
1: get? Uh, <laughs> I, I don't actually know what the, <laughs> what, yeah, what the requirements are. But... Uh, but but again, that's uh, that's quite a sophisticated device with a very sophisticated processor and sensing capability, right?
3: Yeah.
2: <laughs>
3: yeah. <laughs> yeah.
5: <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh,
2: uh, uh. Oh yeah. But yes. Uh, go
5: back a slide.
2: Back. Yeah. <laughs>
3: how, how could someone? You stated earlier you've been driving home safety aspects of software development. Already. There's existing vehicles out there with all that.
1: I don't think anybody is seriously thinking of retrofitting vehicles for automation. I mean, the retrofits that we were talking about for the communication devices was to be the tracking of the vehicle motions, so that you might be able to give a warning to a driver or you could be a target so that you don't get hit by another car. But nobody's talking about trying to retrofit automation onto a vehicle. That that would be crazy. There were some people thinking about it some years ago, and I think they've recognized that doesn't make any sense. Um, yeah, 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 Martin. I mean, I
3: think you're making it- But this is this is a problem in the software verification and validation that goes beyond autonomous cars. Oh yeah. It isn't any field where we talk about autonomy and making systems more complex, when we put humans in the loop, quote, hmm. this problem exists. right going to stop people developing these cars, though? So I mean, that's yeah. the sort of thing. so either we have to pour in a massive amount of research dollars into hmm you know, formal verification and validation people, you know, uh,
1: research we have to find and Right. And I got a little bit of that on at, at my, uh, my last slide, but uh, no, it, it's an extremely important and difficult problem. I think the key thing is we're now putting persons in a situation where software could kill them if it doesn't work right. And that's the thing that's so scary about this. This is a case where a blue screen of death could actually produce a death. It's not just a figure of speech anymore. And that's what makes it so scary. Yeah?
2: Well, is there intelligence that judge certain situations, like a ball rolls out in the middle of the street all of a sudden, like the computer would know it's not just a ball, there's going to be a kid running out for it soon?
1: Right. And you can start using heuristics like that to identify potential threat situations. The problem is how do you identify enough of them that you can get to these this million hours or more of continuous operation without killing a kid. How many circumstances would you actually have to deal with in which kids are going to run out in front of cars? The system's got to be able to handle that over the lifetime of the vehicle and to get those safety statistics up. This gets...
2: Yeah? yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah. So when you look at...
5: The, I mean, the accidents, there are... say, there's a So some of the ones you identified in your slides some time ago do occur. But they're the rare example. 60% of the tally accidents are single vehicle just drove off the road into a ditch because someone was drunk or fell asleep, for example. Mm-hmm. And that's the majority of the accidents right there. Not balls and alcohol is involved in about 40% of them as well. So, the, so these unusual circumstances you're describing, while they do happen, are actually a small minority of the fatal accidents and total accidents out there. So you have to enumerate all the causes of accidents and see that you've reached a level those circumstances then you might fail even though you really don't know exactly what they are are sufficiently rare that you've reached your safety goal. your safety goal. And nobody has reached that goal yet. But uh, it is understandable how to calculate.
1: No, I don't think that's a valid way of calculating it because you actually have to deal with all the safety events that did not happen because the drivers intervened and avoided those problems successfully. So you've got to deal with all the other ones that are not documented, unfortunately. O- only the fatals are documented fully. The injury crashes and all the other crashes and the near misses are not documented.
5: Well, the studies have been hard.
1: Yeah, there are about 2,000 cars that were instrumented for a year of driving, collecting a lot of the data that's just starting to be analyzed now. So, uh, so you,
5: you can enumerate them, and as you drive and test your car, for you, you start to get feelings, not just feelings, you can start to get data on the frequency of the various events you want to deal with. Anything that someone can come up with in a talk, like what if a kid throws out a ball, mm-hmm. I can guarantee you that the designers have also thought of that one if you can come up with it briefly in an hour. Mm-hmm. Um, and eventually you get mm-hmm. the ones you can't come up with small box that you're with. You don't know what exactly what's in the box, but you know how big it
1: is. I'm not sure you do know how big it is at that point, but yeah. I mean, your point,
2: it seems to me with the question about being deterministic on all the different things that happen is impossible in infinite tasks, right? We'll have millions of lines of exceptions. Yep. So, right? Simply not doable. Yep. In the long run, the, the solution has got to be something that is non-deterministic, that you're uh, very fuzzy and soft
1: and it's probably a combination of a bunch of those methods but to get to the point that you can develop that capability and then show that it's actually safe enough, I think is still going to be a really huge challenge especially now if you're going to try to prove the safety, I mean now we're, now we're beyond any kind of deterministic methods How do you prove it other than by exhaustive testing? And you can't afford to do the exhaustive testing. I I think there's a real dilemma there. There's a fundamental dilemma of how do you get to that point where you can show that, indeed, it's safe enough. Now, this is particularly the case when you're dealing in this highly stochastic environment of road traffic where there's so many things that you can't anticipate. And I think we've actually covered just about everything here through the discussion anyway. Um, We should point out that if we want to improve capacity or efficiency on the highway, we have to remember traffic is a weakest link phenomenon. So, even if you've got some of these automated vehicles scattered out there that might do better, it's the manual vehicles that are still going to get in the way and are going to produce some of those problems. So, that's a case where to get some of those benefits, you might actually have to have them segregated from each other.
0: quick comment is is, uh I'm a mechanical engineer by training as well, and uh, I've been at Nissan for nine years now, and some of these are different issues because they're software issues, but in reality, car companies have gotten very good at looking at these potential risks. Right. You know, and we do. You know, you're familiar with the FEMA, You know, when I would work on quality processes, you do failure mode effects analysis, and you look at the potential severity of an issue. You look at the potential, potential frequency and the cost, and then you you know you look at ways to mitigate that. And that's actually one thing car companies do very well. Now, I think it remains to be seen. So we can all come up with scenarios where we think mm-hmm. we might not be able to think about it, but we have so many redundancies built in. In um, I mean, you yeah, know, we've been cars have been able to kill people for a long time now Right. and car companies have gotten very good at finding ways to keep that from happening. Now, it still remains to be seen whether or not we can merge that knowledge with the with the software well, issues and I understand right. that. But it's-
1: yeah, and I think that's the big challenge. How do you make that transition from what you can do on the hardware side to make it applicable on the software side, and I've been in some meetings where there's been a lot of arguing about that, how much of that you can actually apply when you get into the software domain just because of the complexity, and and I think there are also some challenges. You think about some of the comparisons to commercial aircraft automation. You've got a flight control system operating up there at 30,000 feet with your commercial airliner. Well, in many ways, this is a harder problem. You've got to identify and respond to your hazards A lot faster, I'm guessing, on the order of a factor of 100. You've got to track the trajectories of probably on the order of 10 other vehicles and other road users in your vicinity rather than at most one that you might have if you're an aircraft. You need to know your own position and the position relative to all those other targets within an accuracy on the range of 10 centimeters. Probably another factor of 100 more accurate than you'd need an aircraft. You need to know your own speed and your speed relative to all those other targets on the order of a half meter per second, another factor of 10, and you've got to sell it to the end user for something in the range of 1000 to $10,000 incremental cost on top of the vehicle cost. It's maybe a factor of 1000 compared to a commercial aircraft case. And you've got to operate without having a guarantee that the owner has followed a prescribed maintenance regimen, and you don't have any professional training for the driver that has to be able to operate with John Q. Public as the driver. That's pretty hard. So given all that, what is it that we should be doing now? And I think it depends on what the goals are. If the goal is improving safety, then I suggest we should be enhancing collision warning and control assistance systems that operate with the driver remaining in the loop, that augment the driver's capabilities. If the goal is improving traffic flow, then we can be going into things like the cooperative ACC and giving priority to those cooperative ACC's in designated lanes so you get the higher concentration of them operating close together. If we're trying to reduce energy use and pollutant emissions, then we can look at things like the truck platooning and the cooperative ACC, and to get beyond those, then I think We need a lot of research to address some of those continuing challenges. And these are some of the topics we've been talking about. Sensing in the data fusion so you can really get a comprehensive neighborhood state map around that vehicle. A lot of work on fault. Management, fault-tolerant control, and software safety. How do you get to the point where you can say, yes, this system really works the way it's supposed to? I think there's role for infrastructure in this, and there should be some case studies on infrastructure development so you can look at site-specific costs and benefits and constraints. What if we tried doing this in this particular location? Uh, how would that work out? What would it cost? What benefits would we gain for the transportation system? I think human factors testing to define those driver roles with viable partial automation systems. This gets back to some of the concerns that were expressed about the, the level three and four systems. So what are viable approaches to this that can be done safely and that would be acceptable to drivers? And eventually I think there's going to have to be long duration prototype testing under a lot of adverse conditions to prove that the system can actually work successfully. And have got to be careful with what we're telling the customers they're getting. Uh, what's being promised to the driver or to the purchaser of the vehicle? Are they being promised a system that's going to give them complete driving automation, like door-to-door chauffeuring of the seven-year-old child who obviously can't do the driving themselves? Or is it something that only works for freeway driving? Maybe not even on all freeways, or only some of the freeways. Maybe not under all traffic conditions, only under some traffic conditions or some weather conditions. Is the driver allowed to go to sleep or not? Or is the driver required to stay awake? Well, if the driver's got to remain awake, how soon do they be, need to be prepared to intervene, and what happens if they don't intervene in time? How do you make sure that something bad doesn't happen? And if the system is going to nag the driver to say, you've got to keep active, you've got to keep touching the steering wheel, you've got to keep watching the road ahead, do they gain any benefit from the system? What they really wanted to be able to do is to play with their phones or play with their tablets while they're making the trip. And if the system is preventing them from doing that, I'm not sure they're going to be very excited as customers. So I think there are lots of challenges to deal with there. And with that, uh, I think we've, we've consumed most of our time. I don't know if there are any remaining questions to wrap up. Yes? Uh, you mentioned Vincent's,
7: uh consideration
1: all sorts of people giving input to NHTSA, um, and they're doing a very large field test right now in Ann Arbor, Michigan, uh, where they have a fleet of vehicles that have been equipped with the technology, they're testing um, in operation to try to collect data, Um, and then they're doing a series of computer simulations to try to predict what would happen if that were expanded to a larger scale because they have to do a benefit-cost justification uh, before they can get very far into the regulatory process to say, to predict what would it cost if this were implemented and what might the benefits be. Now, this is a really challenging thing to do in a realistic way because you can't do a full-scale experiment with all the vehicles being equipped. Uh, I I think what Ann Arbor is a city of about 100,000 people, and they've got 3,000 or so vehicles that are equipped and of those there are only a couple of hundred that actually have the warning system on them the others are just equipped with the transmitter that says here I am so that it can serve as a target for the ones that have the warning system so that limits the number of encounters that can actually be uh, can be measured so it's a really hard thing to show experimentally
7: well, can you tell us
1: so I have in this vacuum thing Okay, but let's make clear what the decision is. The decision that they have to make at the end of the year is whether to start the regulatory process. Okay, it's not to issue the regulation. It's whether to start the regulatory process or whether to go into an NCAP process and say this would be uh, factored into the new car assessment program for safety. And then there would be, I think it's at least two years more of work that would have to be done to develop a regulation and to go through the whole process of issuing a regulation. And then if they issued the regulation, they would still need to leave the car makers something like three years before it would be mandated to be included on the vehicle. So if they make that positive decision by the end of this year, we're looking at model year 2019 or 2020 when it might actually be required on new vehicles. Okay. So there's a, there's a multi-step process they have to go through. And I don't envy them having to make that decision uh, by the end of this year based on the data that will be available at that point. Yeah. Uh, yes, yeah, Right. Also, in the meantime,
5: of course, the FCC wants to take the spectrum back well, and, uh, and put it on a well, license. So.
1: Well, yeah, it's not exactly taking it back. It's opening it up to other users as well.
2: That's I want to
5: ask this question that I've been asking all sorts of DSRCs. Can you name an example of another network communications technology that grew to success when the way it would work for networking was to go to network with a person you encountered randomly in physical the physical world?
7: You're infrastructure.
5: Well, I, I, I can't think of one. I'm asking other people if they can think of one. Because that's what the SRT wants to do. And um, all the other networking technologies never evolved that way. And so uh, this is what like I see can see it. in my search.
1: Okay. I, I'm, not a, I'm not an expert on all the networking technologies to be able to know what the history is of all of them, but this is also uh, a case where we're not just dealing with information transfer. We're deal, dealing with things that have public safety ramifications, which is why they're looking at a regulatory approach to getting it started. Uh, because uh, if it's based on the benefit to the first purchaser, they can't see the benefit until there are a variety of other vehicles that are in their vicinity. That's why they're looking at a regulatory approach to get it off the ground. Uh, yes. referring to networking. what I got
3: from you, what they're talking about is
1: practically broadcasting. It is broadcasting. These are all broadcasts, and then the others are listening and filtering out those broadcasts
2: runs in less capable mode,
1: That's right. There's, no, there's no connection uh, involved there. It's simply broadcasting, uh, vehicles are broadcasting, other vehicles are listening, and they're picking up what's of interest to them and then using it.
2: So it's like the, the problem would be whether or not I should trust that that person broadcast the
1: Right, and then you get into all the issues of what if somebody is trying to put a spoof system out there to cause problems for others, and there have been a bunch of people studying those those issues. Yeah, um, I mean, this is something that's been under study for. Uh, well, the original spectrum availability was in 1999, and then the DOT started sponsoring work on that in the early 2000s. So, there's been at least 10 years worth of work that's been going into that to try to make that system as safe as possible. And a lot of work has been done on the the security and on the privacy aspects as well, because there are obviously privacy implications also.
5: Uh, yes.
2: of your 7-year-old child, including DSLC, this is a good penetration number. When do you foresee this is going to be a consumer product? He's asking
1: when I would expect to see the uh, totally automated chauffeuring of the 7-year-old child as a consumer product.
2: Including DSLC SLC, uh, a good penetration number.
1: I don't see it for many decades. And I will say I don't see the autonomous version of that, as I've said in other cases, within the lifetime of anybody in the room. I think once you get into those safety challenges, it.
5: What about the lifetime of any little kids? There?
7: May, may, maybe. Yeah,
1: maybe. But yeah, but. All right. Yeah, okay. All right. Wrap it up there. Okay. Thank you, Stephen. All right. Thank you. We're
0: grateful, Stephen, for your coming today, and and we enjoyed it. Again, everyone, um, have a couple more pieces of pizza on your way out. Take your time. Stay and mingle. Lots of good, interesting people here. So, we'll see you next time.